0: Father, we thank you for this day. This is the day the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it. There are so many things that you have brought our way today that we could perceive as obstacles, but you have purposefully allowed them for our strengthening, and we are rejoicing in those right now. Thank you, Father, for every obstacle that we encountered today, every struggle and difficulty, every trial and hardship, because we know that God... You are greater than all of those, and they are opportunities for us to see, by faith, God step in and do miracles. And if you chose to remain, allow them to remain, then, Father, we thank you for them as well because you used them in our life to build us, strengthen us, redirect us. Uh, Whatever your purpose was, it was great. It was awesome. And so we say thank you as hard as it was. Thank you. Father as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians they encountered a lot of obstacles and a lot of those obstacles were sin and you delighted to be able to remove them. And Father I ask that today that you would greatly encourage us through this book and that you would speak to us by your spirit. Father I pray that Jesus Christ would be on display tonight and that Father as we look to your son that you would kindle passion and love and fervency and faith in the name of Jesus spirit be our teacher right now in Jesus name amen all right first Corinthians was written to what church sorry silly question so the Corinth uh, Paul visited Corinth on his second missionary journey it was a large city hundreds of thousands and it was it w- it had a lot of slaves and a lot of freed men or free people, i.e. non-slaves. There was something about Corinth, though, that you need to know. Corinth was very close to Delphi, which, of course, you may have heard of the Delphi oracles. Um, it's very possible that the, the at it, that at Delphi, there was a fish, a fisher? Yeah. A fisher in the rock that emitted fumes, and they would get high on those fumes, and they would, quote-unquote, prophesy. Um, But along with the Delphi oracles, the prophecies that would come forth, also realized there was a tremendous amount of prostitution. They say that there was probably a thousand prostitutes in the city, and much of that was associated with pagan religion. The term to Corinthianize meant to have sex to commit sexual immorality. And it was a very commonly used term. So guess what? Sin issue is going to be a hot button for Paul. All right. And we're going to see that. But let me just say that when you give in to the flesh. In this area, it opens the doors to a lot of areas as well. Chapter 10, he gets into idolatry, which is demonic. And he gets it. I mean, people were involved. Christians were involved in these types of feasts. And there were demons associated with this. Paul tells us that. Um, There was just a lot of corruption as a result of the, the surroundings, the, the city itself. So we read about Paul's missionary journey there in Acts 18. He was there for a year and a half, which to our knowledge is the second longest that he stayed in any city or any area. So for a year and a half, he was there. And the, even though he faced opposition, the Lord spoke to him. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Are you seriously going to eat the cucumber? This is being recorded. Yeah, is. Wow. Okay. What? Okay. Eat that cucumber. Great. All right. Okay. You guys are free to eat dinner because of where this study falls? That's fine. That's fine. Um, and while he was there, the Lord encouraged him that... He, God, had many in that city. Be faithful. Don't worry about the persecution. So in response to that, he ended up staying there a year and a half. Now I want you to look at chapter one and the very first verse, actually. Very first verse. Who wrote this letter? Thank you. There is more. Sosthenes. Okay, Paul And Sosthenes, Paul and our brother Sosthenes. Now, it is very likely that Paul wrote this um, and Sosthenes' heart was in it as well. Now, I want you to go to Acts 18. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, go to Acts 18. We're going to find something very interesting here. Paul is preaching in the synagogue, and in verse 7 it says, when Paul left the synagogue due to opposition and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. In other words, he, he worshipped the true God, went to the synagogue, so he was, a, um, he was a God-fearing Gentile, okay? Much like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. So he was a God-fearing Gentile, uh, but he latched onto the gospel, And so he opened his home. He lived next door, okay? Opened his home and people began to meet there. I imagine he was a somewhat wealthy man uh, to be able to do that. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So here is Crispus, who it appears, if it's the same one, is mentioned Elsewhere, but Crispus was the synagogue ruler, Jewish synagogue ruler. You remember the rich young ruler, he was more than likely uh, a synagogue ruler. Here is a gentleman by the name of Crispus, and he gets saved. He turns to Christ. Life is, tr- is so totally transformed that it impacts his entire family. Okay? This man had influence in over everyone in his entire household. Can I just say that that, men, that is the impact that you can have in your homes. Okay? Is the leader in your homes. And women, you have a very strong impact as well. Us men can be stubborn sometimes. And women can tend to follow their husbands when they follow Christ. It's a lot harder though when women choose to follow Christ for men to follow them. Okay? So here is a here is a man, synagogue ruler, comes to Christ, and his entire household, that would include servants, etc., come to Christ as well. I want you now to look at the very end of this story, verse seventeen, his stay in um, in Corinth, and it says, "Okay, Paul is hauled before Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, and Gallio does not." take the Jews very seriously. He's pretty frustrated with them. You're wasting my time. So he turns around and says, then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. So Sosthenes opposed Paul, brought this troublemaker, this guy who's turning the world upside down, right? Before the proconsul of Achaia, a high ranking official, wasted his time, Gallio, Gallio believes, and so the people in the court just start beating Sosthenes. And Gallio says, Oh, well, tough luck. You deserve it. Whatever. And it's very possible that this is the very same Sosthenes that we just read about, who opposed Paul. Now is following Christ, and has such influence on the Christians. Why? Because he was the synagogue ruler, and many from the synagogue were coming to Christ. So he has influence not only amongst the Jews, but now amongst the Christians. And so he is. It's, it's very possible that he has traveled with Paul, because Paul is writing from Ephesus. So if you turn to Acts, excuse me, First Corinthians sixteen. Verse 19, it says, The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Let's understand this. When Paul, right before he comes to this, this place, um, or, or excuse me, right after, he he while he's in Corinth, he meets up with uh, Aquila and Priscilla, who then travel with him to Ephesus. He leaves them at the end of the second missionary journey. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. When he now comes back to Ephesus in his third missionary journey and stays three years, he joins up with them. Aquila and Priscilla, we find at the end of uh, eighteen, Acts 18, has been ministering to Apollos. We find that it's very possible they've been ministering to a number of people, setting the groundwork so that when Paul comes to Ephesus for the first time, I mean, and, and stays there and really ministers. Um, he, he stays there for three years. Um, when we look at Second Corinthians, we're going to see something interesting with regard to that stay. I'm not going to do that now, but all I'm going to say is Aquila and Priscilla are in, have moved from Corinth to Ephesus. They have a house church there. And at the end, or towards the end of this three year stay, Paul, sends greetings from Priscilla and Aquila so we know that Paul is writing from Ephesus. And he is writing towards the end of his three years because he says, when I come and stay with you guys, I may stay through the winter. Okay, so it is towards the end of his three-year stay in Ephesus. Let me just also add that when you read the book of Romans, that was written about two years later or so, we find that Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome and they have a house church in Rome and he sends greetings to them. In fact, he he they are the first that he sends greetings to of a litany of people that he knows. Now, he had never been to Rome. We'll look at this when we get to Romans and yet he's writing a letter to them because so many people had left Rome and come back. We'll find out why. Um... Priscilla and Aquila used to be in Rome, left, went to Corinth, then went with Paul to Ephesus, and now they're back in Rome. So that just gives you an idea as far as Priscilla and Aquila. Paul is sending this letter in 55 AD, towards the end of his three-year stay in Ephesus. I also want you to see that this letter that he writes to the Corinthians is very different than his other letters. For example, the book of Romans. The book of Romans takes 11 chapters and really digs deeply into theology, okay? Especially the theology of the cross and terms such as justification and such. And then he spends chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. 16 is more salutations. So then he spends four chapters on some practical issues, but these issues don't appear to be serious problems in, in Rome, and again, Paul had not visited Rome, but he was aware of what was going on there because he had known, he knows so many people. Actually, he seems to know more people in Rome and sends them greetings than any other church that he administered to. okay so in, so, so that gives you an idea of Rome First Corinthians. The theology is scattered throughout and it is strictly driven by issues in the church. While he is in Ephesus, he gets word back from some of the brothers and they say, you know what, there's some problems there. Problems in Corinth. They actually give Paul a letter and in that letter they raise questions that Paul then proceeds to address from chapter 7 to the end of the letter. Okay? Okay. If you look at the book of Corinth, uh, excuse me, Colossians, the first two chapters, very theological. The last two chapters, very practical. Ephesians, same thing. The first three chapters are very theological. The next, the last three chapters are very practical. Application. Again, Corinthians is written differently. Same, same with Second Corinthians. Okay. So this is issues driven. And there's probably a dozen issues that he addresses. Okay. So let me go ahead and begin to look at this because there are so many issues. I'm going to kind of go through, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to go through this book. There's 16 chapters and I'm going to help form a, a, an outline of this and what these issues are, um, some of these issues we will camp out in, and some of them I'm just going to brush over, okay? Because we now have a little over an hour, hour and 10 minutes, and that's that's what we're going through an entire letter in just a bit over an hour. So bear with me. Uh, we are not going to address baptism for the dead. Maybe that's a real theological question some of you have. Why on earth did they baptize for the dead? Well, there, there's potentially a very simple answer to that. And, uh, and it's just simply that he is speaking to these people who denied the resurrect, who denied the resurrection, and he's saying that they were baptizing for the dead, not that the Christians in Corinth were. Um, that is a very strong possibility. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Tertullian in 200 AD says, I don't know that the church does not practice that now. We've never heard of it. And it's, it's a non-issue. So it, it's very likely that uh, what I just shared with you is is uh, the correct view. However, the Mormons take issue with that and they baptize people for the dead and they hope that everyone that they baptize for will will go to heaven. I guarantee you that that will not be the case. Anyone who baptizes for Hitler, Hitler will not be in heaven. He denied Christ to the very end. So, uh, let's get on with these uh, issues and that's kind of... See how this book unfolds. The very first thing that Paul speaks to, the very first issue, is what? What's the very first issue? Boasting Boasting about who you follow. follow. I'm going to entitle this Divisions. It actually goes through chapters 1 through 4. Um kind of changes a little bit of the course, but that still is the theme, um, chapters 1 through 4. Now, this issue is so strong in Paul's mind. Not only does he devote four chapters to it, but in chapter, look at chapter 3. It is because of this, it is because of this that he, excuse me, for some reason my Bible turned it. Chapter five, it is because of this, he says that I cannot address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Chapter, verse three, you are still worldly. For for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Well, they were men, but they're supposed to be born again, new nature men, when they're not acting like it. And it's because of this issue. This is a big issue. It brought division. It's, it it caused pride to rise up within them. Well, I follow Peter. After all, Jesus spoke to him and said, on this rock, I'll build my church. Or he was like the main go-to guy of Jesus' 12 disciples or whatever excuse they gave. Um, people would say, no, 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 no. I follow Paul. Paul planted this church, guys. We follow Paul. And others would say, but Apollos, oh, that guy is an orator. What a profound teacher. He outshines Paul every time he opens his mouth. And Paul probably would not deny that, by the way. And others would say, "Ah, well, you know what, guys, that's good, but we we follow Christ as if Christ was just, I mean, all, obviously that's the right answer, right? But they threw it out there as if he's just one of many people to follow. We just follow him. No. And so Paul rebukes them because they were associating themselves with these people and it was filling them with pride. Listen to this. Listen. How many people say, I follow John Calvin. I follow Jacob Arminius. I follow whom, you know, John Wesley. Those men would roll over in their graves if they heard people say that. And the pride with which they associate their beliefs with these men. Oh, I'm an Augustinian. Whatever. Paul says, you are immature, you are worldly. People, there are pastors world-renowned who are filled with pride because they are either Calvinists or Aminians. And and I am not opposed to our belief system leaning in these directions. But I know too many Calvinists who are so grieved when entire seminaries and churches led by large churches led by strong uh, reformed pastors so strongly associate themselves with Calvin's Institutes, and they hold it up and make jokes, seriously make jokes such as, um, Paul must have read John Calvin's Institutes when he wrote Romans. And, and this is arrogance. And it, I, I have close Calvinist brothers, and, and actually I kind of grew up in that tradition and kind of sorted through much of that in my twenties, but this is arrogance. And it was for that reason I did not want to associate with uh, that denomination early on. And later I, I chose not to because theologically they would not want me. But the truth is we can do this and we have to be so careful. Man is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, when we get towards the end of chapter one, moving into chapter two, he talks about the, the, the foolishness of men compared to... Uh, or the fool, well, the wisdom of man, which is really foolishness, as opposed to the foolishness of God, which is really wisdom. Now, did you follow that? Okay, man's wisdom, philosophy, it all focused on man and what man could accomplish. It was humanism in its varied forms. And it was all about what we could do and what we could accomplish and the, the cities that we could build and extending peace throughout the world and all of this. And it was about man, man, man. And so when you start talking about God taking on human flesh, what? No, 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 no. See, there are many God's. And some of them are good, and some of them are evil. And the evil ones have some good, and and the good ones have some evil. And this is how we answer the problem of evil in our world, because none of them are really good. And then they get into this mythology, uh, and and it's completely, truly, it's illogical, but it is truly man-centered. And Paul then comes along, and he is proclaiming the gospel. And the worldly wise say that's foolishness. But Paul says, no, you say it's foolishness because what I am preaching is spiritually discerned. That's his focus in chapter two. It's, these are spiritual words to be understood by spiritual men, men and women. Um, and so the gospel truly does not make sense in the human mind. If you and we see that today, every religion throughout the world that has ever existed has always focused on works. Works. If you do enough good works, then you'll make it to nirvana or whatever hereafter. Um, and the gospel says, nope. It is all by grace. It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. Rose from the dead. He therefore can forgive us of our sins and impart new life. And we're going to come to that gospel at the end in chapter 15, just not right now. But this is foolishness to the worldly wise. Um, how can it be that by someone dying, he imparts life? That just doesn't make sense. How, why is it necessary for someone to die for sins to be forgiven? This sounds like foolishness. What about, and we hear this today, what if someone supposedly walks the, excuse me, walks to the altar and becomes a Christian and goes out and kills people? He's still going to heaven? So how is it that God will forgive him of all those murders and still allow him to go to heaven? Just because he believed in Jesus. Do you see the distortion and the misunderstanding of the gospel? But that is what meant. How many of you have ever heard someone at least say something like that before? Okay. Why is it that you can go to heaven just by believing in Jesus? Well, that is because people do not understand that the cross and the resurrection, our salvation, our justification, heaven itself, all of that is grace focused. It's not you focused. It's not what you can do to get your way there. It's not what you can do to present yourself right before God. It is what God has done. And we simply receive that. Now we receive it by faith and faith is active. It's not passive. Faith is receiving, but it will cost you everything. Now, doesn't that sound just a little illogical? It's not by works, it's by faith alone, but faith will cost you everything. That is, it will cost you your life. Because faith means I give my entire life to Jesus Christ. I am surrendering to him, okay? It costs you everything. And so the gospel is spiritually discerned. It runs completely contrary to the wisdom of this world, And he then goes on to say in verse 26 of chapter 1, "...Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth." Um, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world. In other words, the, the concept of the gospel and this inheritance that we receive, all of these things that God has chosen, the fact that we don't find our satisfaction in the things of the world makes no sense whatsoever to the world, but we find our complete satisfaction in Christ. And when we do that our enjoyment of what God has created and given, he has given us all things, they find their proper place and that's when we can thoroughly enjoy them, okay? It's not by seeking after them. It's not by placing them first in our life. It's not by finding our full satisfaction in them. They're secondary, okay? Secondary to God himself, all right? Now, God, he, he says God has chosen met, God has chosen many of you and you are not the philosopher who spoke in Athens. You are not the teacher. You are not the rabbi. You are not the wealthy. You are not because these people got so entangled in this philosophy of the world. Now, when they were confronted with the gospel, it was, it was just so offensive and illogical to them. And but for the Corinthians who did not necessarily buy into that hook, line and sinker. They didn't necessarily oppose it and they were open to it. And because they were open to it. God led them to Christ. Now, I want us to see something here in chapter two, where he says in verse one, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the message about God. This um this eloquence or superior wisdom. He is talking about the gospel as he preached it, proclaimed it, God becoming man. What? That didn't fit in there with Greek mythology, God becoming man. Uh, There was always like a a, a birthing uh, or, or a mating and birthing of someone like Hercules who was half God and half man. Uh, And things like this. But God becoming man, and how does this work? And so it was just, it was a mystery to them. Did not make sense. He now is proclaiming the what of the gospel, okay? And then in verse 4, he says that his message came, did not come with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is the how, So when he proclaimed the gospel, he was not an orator. He was not an Apollos. He was not one in which people would say, wow, you tell such funny jokes and you entertain me. I could sit at your feet for hours. And there are some gifted people in the body of Christ. I don't mean to demean that. There's some really gifted people in the body of Christ who are total stand-up comedians and present the truths of the gospel very well. And that's just not most of us. Okay. It's just not most of us. Some are just really eloquent. They are wordsmiths when they start preaching. That's just not most of us, okay? And this is what Paul is getting at. But when he came, you know what? That wasn't me either. But when I came, I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Miracles? Absolutely. But when the gospel was preached, the miracle that took place, which was even greater was the Spirit coming in and transforming these people. Transforming them so that the old was gone and the new would come, which is a verse in 2 Corinthians, actually. So he realizes that when he comes to them, he is coming with spiritual words, the gospel, and he is coming with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. This is... Perhaps a good transition from Galatians that we looked at two weeks ago because in Galatians we realized that we need to sow to the Spirit to reap life. Anything that we do, we must do it with the power and the wisdom and guidance and leading of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. That means the law, as the Pythagogos, does not lead them. The Spirit leads us. The Spirit stirs in us to will and to act according to God's purposes. The Spirit stirs in us and speaks through us and works through us. Just as the Spirit uh, worked through Jesus. Now granted, Jesus had the Spirit without limit and none of us do. But Jesus, in taking on human frailty, made a decision to completely rely upon the Father and the Spirit's working through him. He did not rely upon his own deity. He he didn't set his deity aside, but he set the availability of that deity. He chose not to draw from his deity to work miracles. Okay? But he relied, Luke 4 tells us, on the Spirit. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord has anointed me. Okay? So he had the Spirit without limit, but I am calling us and challenging us, as with Paul, that we draw from the Spirit, we source the spirit and consequently we speak with power we live with power we proclaim a message of power and it is that that transforms lives and that message is focused on one person it's not focused on me it's not focused on peter or cephas or apollos it is focused strictly on jesus christ and those who don't get this are spiritually immature So I, I am not opposed to people leaning towards Calvinism or leaning towards Arminianism. I may have theological differences, but the greatest thing that we can do is focus on this gospel—love, true love—is the and unity is the ability to look beyond theological differences that are outside the gospel. Understand? Because the gospel is central, and then focus on the gospel focus on the very fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and there were no denominations in the first century church. There just weren't. All right? Now, I am not opposed to denominations. I'm not. We are a non-denominational church, but it's not because of what Paul writes here. We are a non-denominational church because when I look at the first century church, I don't see it but I understand people aligning themselves theologically with the denomination. That's fine. As long as they follow this, as long as they realize that I do not, you know, this denomination and what it believes takes a backseat to the gospel every time. And Jesus is always our focus, always our focus. And we need to keep that in balance as we, talk theologically, and so on. Let me just give you an illustration that will help before we move on to the next section here. Um, Man was traveling in an airplane as he was flying over Kansas, looked out, and still flying rather low. He saw so many fences, ranches, farmland, and you could see how huge these lands were that were owned by ranchers and farmers and so on. Um, and it would, the, even from high up, you could, you could still see these, these fences. When he came back several months later, he looked for the fences and he could not find them. And you know why? Because the harvest in the farmlands had grown up. The wheat and corn had bent over the fences and you could not see the divisions any longer. And my point is this. If our focus is the harvest because the power of the gospel is so effective the gospel is our focus if we if that is if we keep that at the forefront these divisions these fences they're still there but they are not to be seen, they're not to be focused on. So we're going to talk theology as we go through the Pauline epistles, as you go through a theo- the theology class online. We're going to talk theology. But those that theology, much of it does focus on the gospel, but anything outside of the gospel, what specifically we believe about hell, does hell have literal fire or is it figurative fire? Um, that takes a back seat when we start talking about the gospel. Okay, we are united with brothers and sisters in the Sanford, Lake Mary area and beyond because of the gospel, all right? Because I believe when God looks down upon this earth, he should not see the fences, but he should see the harvest. Do you understand? Okay, so I'm going to go on then to chapter five. And in chapter five, as I say, one through four is about these divisions. And uh, chapter four is, is rather... I don't want, there's some sarcasm that he throws in there. It is a somewhat humorous chapter, but it's a very real chapter because Paul, these people are proud and Paul says, you know what, we should be kings, but we are your servants. How, we, how may we serve you type of attitude? Wow, Paul, you're an apostle. You should be ruler here. And yet we're being lifted up in pride. Some say they follow you and some say they follow Cephas And Paul has a few things to say with regard to that in chapter four. Anyways, we move on to chapter five. He now gets into this issue of sexual immorality that goes through chapter five, chapter six. He starts talking about marriage and singleness. So he's still touching on the same subject. So it technically lasts three chapters. Um, And in chapter five, he talks about this man and it says here, uh, it is actually reported. So the first seven, actually six chapters, seven does touch on sexual immorality, but it has more to do with a question that they ask. So chapters f- uh, one through six are issues that has come to Paul's attention that he's addressing. And he says, it's been reported to me. And I, it's like he says, I, I, I just can't believe this. Really? It's, it's, it's actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. This is to their shame, all right? A man has his father's wife. Now, he says it that way more than likely because this is his stepmom. He doesn't say a man has his mom, okay? A man has his father's wife. So it's probably a stepmom. But still, I mean, can you imagine... And he says the pagans even respect their relatives and refuse to have sexual relations in those contexts. Now, they'll go around and have sexual relations with whomever and, and such, but at least they respect those relations. But the church did not. This man did not. And the church of Corinth was so focused on grace that they actually took pride in this man and what he did. And Paul shames them. And he says, I'm sorry, but you need to disfellowship this guy. He has been confronted, but many of you are rejoicing. And so nothing as a result has been done. No, 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 no. He's been confronted. Deal with him. Turn his flesh over to Satan. This is a strong charge. When you, when a church disfellowships someone, it is because, I mean, we're not going to go through the steps here, but in, I'm going to, tell you and encourage you, read that section in Matthew 18. So when he is confronted and refuses to pent and repent and the church, more than likely elders, but the church confronts him and he still chooses not to repent and he's remained hardened in his ways, but nevertheless what he does is sin and he still calls himself a brother or a sister. But does not repent, you disfellowship him. Now the purpose of this, he says, is to get rid of this old yeast. Now, in the Old Testament, when they had Passover or or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had to sweep the entire house and get rid of all of your yeast. No yeast in the house. You swept it. No yeast whatsoever. And this then becomes a shadow of the church. A swept house. No yeast. And therefore, the yeast would represent what? In this case, sin. That's right. And so, in... The church, there should not be this type of sin. It when sin happens, we are we are overcome with godly sorrow that leads us to repentance and an enjoyment of God's forgiveness. The righteous man falls seven times but rises again, and it brings us back to the cross constantly. But this man, no. As a result, disfellowship him and turn his flesh over to Satan. Does he enjoy his sin? Does he refuse to repent? Does he continue to embrace it? Then give him over to it because this is what you will find. And many of you have discovered this in the world. But when you embrace sin and you enjoy its pleasures, you will not be satisfied in it. It will become a metaphor that's used in the Bible. It will become like gravel in your mouth. It will become distasteful for you. Um, even to the point where, anyway, I won't get into that, but there is no satisfaction in the sins of this world. Actually, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the ends are death, destruction. Why is the road that leads to what? Destruction narrow the path that leads to life. Okay, and so for this reason, giving him over to Satan, enjoying his sin, he will find the misery, especially as a if he is a, a Christian, the misery of enjoying that sin and the destruction of it, and consequently, the goal then is repentance. Now we do find out in Second Corinthians. Uh, that it, chapter two, it, it does seem that Paul is referring to this man, and that he does repent. It's possible he's referring to a different situation, but more than likely, it is this: the man repents, and he says, "Hey, it, it's done. This, this fellowshipping has done this work. Welcome him, embrace him, love on him." Um, but this is very rarely practiced in the church today, because there is such a misunderstanding of judging. There is such a misunderstanding of God's grace and such a misunderstanding of God's holiness. And because of this, the the church wants so much to fill their pews. They welcome sin. And hey, you know, if you're a Christian and you're sinning, I'm not going to confront you. That's judging. So people believe. And as a result, I'm just going to let you do what you want to do, and hopefully one day you'll repent, and you'll stop doing that, and you'll grow up in Christ, etc. And Paul says, that, what a really bad attitude. Number one, you misunderstand this concept of judging, and you have a really wrong heart about what that even is, because when we bring judgment... We also see that, by the way, we looked at two weeks ago Galatians 6. We didn't look at it, but this is the concept that's found. Those who are spiritual, if someone's caught in a, a sin, you who are spiritual, that is, the opposite of infants in Christ that we looked at in chapter you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. And watch out, because you too might be tempted... You're you're human. You have emotions. You have desires. Don't think that you're above the temptations of Satan. Because if you think you are, Corinthians here says, the one who thinks he stands, take heed because he might fall. So we never want to see ourselves above people, but we always want to seek to come to their rescue and minister to them, which in chapter 6, excuse me, at the end of chapter 5, He says this, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Beginning of chapter 6 talks about, of course you're going to judge him. You're going to end up judging the world. You'll judge angels. So why can't you take care of this simple issue? Judge the man. In our generation, we have a problem with this because in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, it is so well known and quoted Judge not, and you will not be judged. Don't judge me. Don't point out my sin. See, that wasn't Jesus' point right there. Jesus' point was not that we don't point someone's sin out, because that would completely contradict what I just quoted to you from Galatians 6. All right? That the spiritual should restore those. See, that's our heart, though. When we're pointing sin out for someone, it's not so that I feel good about my own personal righteousness and walk with the Lord. I mean, that's pride, but it is to help them. It is to restore them. And if we don't go with that mentality, then we're, we're going to go with pride. And we find out in chapter eight that that runs contrary to love, right? Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so our goal is to be filled with love, not pride, to restore, not condemn. Um, and, but judgment does not mean condemning. The judgment Jesus is talking about is the sense of condemning, and most specifically, it's hypocritical judgment. Pointing the finger about sin in someone else's life when you have the very same issue. First, remove the beam in your eye before you try to attempt to remove the speck of dust in your brothers. So do this with humility. Now, he's not saying don't do it. That would run contrary to not only Galatians 6, but what he's saying here? But we do it with humility. We do it with the goal to restore because we do it in love. Speak the truth in love, he says in the book of Ephesians. Okay? So this attitude, don't judge me, completely unbiblical. As long as we understand what this word judge means, it doesn't mean condemn. It means to point a sin out. And we do it with meekness, humility, not pride. Okay? Any questions on that before we move on to chapter 7? Okay, I want us to now turn to this section. Actually, before I do that, how about if you just stand for a minute and we're going to just stretch our legs a little. I'm going to keep talking, so don't wander out. If you need to use the restroom, do that. But um, we're, going to, we're just going to stretch our legs and shake any sleepiness off and, um, and so on. So just stretch a bit and we'll get going in a second. <clears throat> okay, quickly, stretch your legs. <clears throat> Those of you here in the room right now, any questions with regard to what we have covered so far? This concept of disfellowshipping is a very difficult one. It truly is. Um, and, And I have had people when they were in a church that disfellowshipped them and the church, from what they described, took the right steps. They were just so totally offended and they left the church. I, I just, I, I did speak to them, but how sad that we live in a generation that does not understand this concept. And, and much of it is because we just want so much for our churches to grow that we are afraid to offend. And when we do point someone's sin out in humility and in love, and we do it the right way, um, the, and, and we don't go around just trying to do this with everyone. And God, God will lead us. The the Galatians six is someone who's caught in a sin. It doesn't mean every time someone sins, someone who is caught in a sin. So we do need to exercise some discernment with regard to this, but this is something that is crucial in our day because false doctrines are going to come in um, and people are going to be led into sins, you know, like this that we just talked about, the immoral brother. And this is becoming more and more prevalent. I know of someone who they started going to church and so, and they're living with someone. So the answer is, I've got to divorce my husband that I walked away from so that I can marry you and have sex. Really? Really? Is that God's heart? Is that his answer? God is so much more. You're finding your satisfaction in this. If we could just understand that when we seek God first, these things that Stir in our heart that are of God. Now, this certainly is not of God, but those things that are of God, we will find complete satisfaction in these. But when we choose not to align ourselves with God and with His Word, we are gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna be miserable. We're gonna, we're gonna sow to the flesh and reap destruction. Um, but so many in the church today they don't get this, and and honestly, it I'm sure it's because we don't preach it very much, but. Uh, I am really glad to say that there are so many churches that are waking up and just saying, I refuse to pander to the world's view of sin and I will choose to proclaim Christ and be able to proclaim his word clearly. And I will not mince my words. Gracious, but truth. We speak the truth in love. You have a question, comment? You're running out of notebook paper? I will give you some paper. Now, my paper's small, though. Do you need another one? Maybe? Maybe? Okay, I will give you one more. There you go. Chapter 7, now about the things you wrote to me. Now about the matters you wrote about. And so for the remainder of the book, that is what Paul focuses on. He does this in chapter 7. He does it in chapter 8, now about food sacrificed to idols. He does it in chapter uh, 11, where he says, now, he doesn't say now about, but he says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And so he talks about propriety and worship. Chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts, brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant. (coughs) Um, Then he spends three chapters talking about spiritual gifts, chapter 15 verse 1 now brothers he doesn't say now about it he says now so but again this is an issue that was brought up a question now brothers i want to remind you of the gospel i preached to you okay so it it, he deals with the issue of the resurrection that some at corinth are denying and apparently there was a question about that and then in, in chapter 16 now about the collection for God's people. So you can see he through the remainder of the the letter he speaks to these issues. I do want to say something with regard to chapter 7, okay? And I'm going to just kind of highlight uh very specific things. I'm not going to talk to the entire subject when I do t- tackle a, a subject because, as you can see, sometimes they're a chapter or a couple of chapters long. And we, we've got less than, we have like half an hour, 35 minutes left. So, I want to be sensitive to the time and I'm going to have us move through these. But I'm, for this one, his focus has to do with marriage and singleness. Now, there is a, a problem that arises when people start reading verse 8, Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say... Then in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And this has confused many in the body of Christ to the point, unfortunately, where they were they say, well, this is a good example of where Paul recognizes that he's a man and he is not speaking with inspiration by the Spirit in verses 8 and 9, but from verse 10 on, he is. Well, I'm sorry, I disagree with that. All he's simply saying is, is not that Jesus is speaking through me now and right now Jesus is not. That's not what he is saying. He is simply saying that when he says, not I but the Lord, that Jesus in his earthly ministry address this subject. That is all he's saying. Jesus in his, earthly mes- in his earthly ministry addressed the issue of divorce and remarriage. That's specifically laid out in verses 10 and 11. However, he did not address widows and the unmarried, as Paul is about to there in verses 8 and 9. So do you understand that? It's very important. All scripture is God-breathed, not just some or most, all. And remember, Peter says concerning Paul's writings, many distort what Paul has written uh, as they do the rest of the scriptures. So Peter acknowledges what Paul writes as scripture. So all scripture including what we're reading here, is God-breathed, all right? Inspired of God, inerrant, infallible, has authority to tell us how to live, okay? I want us to, to see something here. Secondly, in verse uh, 15. Now, in verses 12 through 14, he talks about an unbeliever. If he chooses to stay with the believer, then let them stay. And he gets into this concept of the unbeliever and the children will be sanctified. It doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. It just means that God's hand is upon them and his favor and blessing is upon them. Okay. That's all that he is getting at. Okay. They are set apart with for his favor. Now, should however, my point that the unbeliever chooses to leave, He says to the believer, the believing spouse, you are no longer bound in this situation. Many have understood this verse to mean that if I am married to an unbeliever and they choose to leave, I am not bound in, meaning they get a divorce. That's a euphemism. Separating is actually the same word. Leave in the NIV in verse 15 is the same word that's used in verse 10 a wife must not separate from her husband and so he's talking about divorce here as long as you understand that so if the unbeliever chooses to leave and divorce you as a believer it does not mean that you're no longer bound in that covenant and now you are free to remarry this completely contradicts what jesus said and paul just quoted or referenced jesus teaching on this in verses ten and eleven, so why would he then turn around and completely contradict himself? So if he's not contradicting himself, what is Jesus? Excuse me, what is Paul's teaching here? Notice that this Greek word for bound, found in the negative, not bound. This is the Greek word doulo, d o u l o o, and put a line over that last o because it's an omega. All right, there's two different kinds of o's in Greek. So it's doulao, That that means to be served, to be obligated and responsible for, and to be strapped with duty, okay? Even to the point of being enslaved. Let me just say this. This Greek word is never used with regard to marriage. Okay, which, happy note here, marriage is not slavery, okay? It is not. Actually, the word that's used with regard to being bound, our English word being bound, is the Greek word deo, D-E-O, line over the O, D-E-O, deo. And this word means to tie or bind, united, okay? Not enslavement, not bound like you're bound with chains, all right? Any joke about that in marriage? My wife and I were, you know, I've got a ball and chain I take around with me. Uh, That's enslavement. The Bible never uses dula'o with regard to marriage. It uses de'o. Actually, it uses this word de'o right here in this chapter, verse 39. A woman is bound, de'o. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. It's also found in verse 27. Now, the NIV doesn't translate this literally, verse 27. It says, are you married? And it literally reads, are you bound to a woman? Deo. We also encounter this word in Romans 7-2, where a woman, by law, is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Again, dulao is never used with reference to marriage. The Greek word deo is. So when we come to this, verse 15, you're no longer bound then what is he saying? If it's not bound in marriage, what does it mean? He is just, he, he is talking in in the next verse where he's uh, about this concept of trying to win your spouse. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the context. When you are married to an unbeliever, your primary goal is to bring them to Christ. And as Peter says to wives who are believers and their husbands are not, do so without a word. All right? Now, the responsibility, the duty that this concept of being bound is referring to, you're bound to this duty, is not the covenant of marriage. It is this duty to win them to Christ. And because now they leave, you are no longer bound with that duty to win them to Christ. Any more than you're bound to win anyone to Christ. Okay? A believer married to an unbeliever, you are bound to win them to Christ. You do everything you can to win them to Christ. Okay? If they choose to leave, divorce you, that is no longer a responsibility that you are obligated to. Now, you may still seek to reach out to them and so on in as much as you would reach out to your neighbor though. So this is what he talks about. You are no longer bound in this situation. He does not mean that you're free to divorce them and remarry. Very close friend of mine, a pastor, his wife who was a Christian and said that she was a Christian, divorced him. And he said, she just acts so immaturely and this is what a pastor said about his wife. She just acts so immaturely. And I knew this woman, by the way, um, there was immaturity about her, but he said that she acts just like an unbeliever. So I think she is not truly saved. And I qualify for this verse for So now I'm no longer bound in the covenant of marriage. And he had found another woman and he was asking me. He was talking. No, and he didn't actually, he didn't ask me though i did obligate myself to share my understanding of this verse with him i think i was very gracious with him but i really called him and challenged him i don't care who you're talking to i realize that there's a misunderstanding but let me let me see let me show you something from the scripture here the context itself the word do law over as opposed to da- oh, and and Jesus' entire teaching. You're telling me, what you're telling me right now not only contradicts Jesus' entire teaching about the subject of divorce and remarriage, which, by the way, she had not committed sexual immor- immorality or adultery outside the context of marriage. And so she, she had not stumbled into that exception clause that we read about in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And it would even contradict what Paul is saying here. And I appealed to him and his children were opposed to it. And yet he, he, he said, okay, Mike, well, I appreciate that. And I want you to know I'll pray about it. And he ended up marrying her anyway. And my heart broke. Here's a brother. And I knew this brother for years and years and years, but there is a deception out there in the world. And if we if we embrace that deception, it will act like a cancer or the term you hear in chapter five, like a yeast, even within us. OK, and it leads to further deceptions. OK, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, look at the time here. Mm, I really did want to speak to this issue. I'll be real brief. He talks about food offered to idols. This issue is slightly different than the one he brings up concerning uh, the Lord's table in chapter 10. Do you remember chapter 10? He says that when you drink from the cup of, at a pagan feast, you are, uh, you are participating in that pagan sacrifice, which was idolatry. And they are sacrificing to demons. Do you really want to do this? See, they would have feasts, but they would many times be guild feasts. Certain, you know, stonesmiths, masons, uh, carpenters, they would, they, those are their guilds and, and they would, according to their, what they would do, they would, they would have feasts and it was very, it would be religious feasts and many times there would be sacrifices made and then they would serve the people the food offered to idols. And he would say, look, what are you doing? In that context, you know that the, the food has been offered to an idol And they are actually doing this in a ceremony. You are participating with demons. Don't do this. That is not this topic or the context of chapter 8. Chapter 8, he's just talking about going through the market, you pick up some meat, and later you find out that it was offered to an idol. If there is a weaker brother who sees you do this, don't eat of it. Now that weaker brother... Simply means someone who, in their conscience, they can't do it, but now they start to do that. They start to do it. It would be like an alcoholic. He's freed from his alcohol, has a conviction, I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore. Sees another brother drinking, he has a conviction about it, but then he does it and romans 14 says anything not done in faith this is the conclusion of the um disputable matters that alcohol and vegetarianism and clean and unclean uh foods fall into and then this as well Uh, whether you keep the sabbath or not that would be another one now disputable not because we can't get a clear answer from scripture, but it's disputable because people hold to certain convictions. I'm not opposed to alcohol, but I do ask the leaders at Powerline, please be very careful who you choose to drink in front of because we have many former alcoholics and drug addicts in our church, uh, more in the past than maybe we do presently. But please be careful because if they see you do this, it will disturb their conscience, meaning that they could participate in drinking alcohol again and go against their conscience. And by the way, I don't know of any um, addiction recovery program that says to a former alcoholic, Hey, it's okay for you to drink in the future. They all say you really don't want to do it. You really don't. Regardless, Um, there's a principle at play that I'm getting at. And that is, regardless of the issue, food sacrifice to idols, alcohol, and, and and again, I am not a teetotaler. I don't, I, I do believe that there is freedom to drink alcohol. My concern is in our, is in our culture, how that ends up impacting people. So I do ask my leaders, please don't do it in public. Do so if you choose. Do so in the privacy of your home and exercise restraint in that, please. Because we live in a culture that is very free with this. Anyway, the issue here is that we see laid out the an example in chapter 9 is, for example, Paul has the freedom to be able to take money from the Corinthians, but he chose not to. Why? Because he loved them. So he denied personal rights. Do you have the right to eat food sacrificed to idols? Yes. And the idol is nothing. I'm not participating in their sacrifices and, and and such. I found the meat at the market, later found out it had been sacrificed to an idol. It means nothing. I can take I can eat it with a clear conscience and I will enjoy it in fact. But if it causes someone to stumble, I out of love will restrain my freedom. I will deny my right because I do so out of love. And so in chapter nine, he gives the example where he denies himself the right of an apostle to take money from the Corinthians. And he chose instead to work because he did not want anyone to ever accuse him of taking money unwarrantedly. So money that generally was given to him was given to him from churches as he moved on. Okay. Uh, we see an example of that in Philippians four, the Thessalonians sent me aid again and again while I was in need among, while I was stationed there in, in Philippi, okay? Uh, or, or excuse me, you, he was in Thessalonica and he received aid again and again from the Philippians. And he says, thank you so much. And this will be credited to your account, etc. cetera. So uh, Paul denied that right. So that would be an example of denying rights out of love for others because you can reach them more effectively. You can keep them from stumbling into sin, whatever it is. Okay. All right. Um, I I want us to skip a bit here. I'm not going to talk about head coverings. Um, He does come to chapter 12 now about spiritual gifts. And I I am not going to dig into chapter 12 or 13 but I do want us to look at some things in chapter 14 12 13 and 14 are about spiritual gifts now about spiritual gifts brothers I don't want you to be ignorant so this is a question that they addressed he is brought up he is now addressing it and the problem that existed in Corinth was this tendency to give a word a, a tongue without any interpretation verse 6 of chapter 14, he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? And then he goes on to clarify um, that the, the tongue is fine as long as there's an interpretation. Otherwise, he says, your mind is unfruitful. I will speak in a tongue and you'll have no clue what I'm talking about. And it will not build you up unless there's an interpretation. So all of this speaking in tongues and lifting, you know, this, this noise that you make, that's between you and God. Don't lift, don't, don't do it publicly unless there's an interpretation. Okay. So we call this a prayer language. Paul says himself that he has a prayer language. He speaks in tongues more than all of them in private. But when I'm with you, I would rather speak. How does he say it? I would rather speak. Uh, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because speaking in that tongue builds himself up. But the listeners are not built up and edified unless there's an interpretation. Okay, Vicky Lana? Yes, would you speak to uh, 14 verses 33? I, I, I will get there. Uh, okay. I, I, I may address it 33 to... Halal asked me about that. Just as far as women? Yes. Okay, that, that's, I, I'm not going to be addressing that, but I can speak to you afterwards. Sure. Uh, only due to time, okay? And we need to take it also in the context with 2 Timothy chapter 2. Okay, um, so... Don't speak in tongues, creating a disruption. Very, It could get very loud as everyone, you can imagine, just started speaking in their prayer language. You know, that's between you and God. So he says to them uh, in, let me uh, get the verse here, verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. In other words, don't talk. The speaker should not be the speaker. He should not speak. So he needs to keep quiet in the church because you're not edifying others. Now, in your prayer closet, fine. You're the only one speaking. You're the only one listening, aside from God. And that's fine. But in the church, keep quiet if there's no interpretation and speak to himself. He sh- the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Okay? And so there are many times in which I'm ministering over people. and Instead of praying in a prayer language out loud, I'm, I speak very softly. That's not going to minister to the person I'm praying over. But someone take some people take great delight in this, and I won't get into any of the reasons why. But truly, it does not benefit them. So why do that? Really, why? Unless the Lord gives you an interpretation for them. Question. I was just going to say, like, that doesn't mean that no one's allowed to overhear you speaking. It just, Very like, true. Right. I've actually had someone say that the practice in their former church was they did not allow tongues in the assembly for that reason, because someone might hear you. His his issue is not whether you hear them or not. Oh, I hear you speaking in tongues. That's sin. Not allowed to do that. Really, because this woman, this person, had actually heard me praying very softly in a tongue, and so she she was actually offended. She was very gracious when she came to me. And she was actually very teachable. And she said, oh, wow, I've just not seen that before. So the issue is not whether I can hear you or not. Just understand, you're not going to bless them. So don't do it out loud. Actually, it'll bring confusion. And the people who are, un, who are unbelievers or seekers will think, wow, you guys are absolutely looney tunes. Okay? And the goal should be, wow, God is surely among you. Now, there is a difference. We find out in the first five verses of this chapter that there is a difference between speaking in tongues and prophecy. And he tells us right there that, but every, uh, excuse me, for one who speaks in a tongue, verse 2, does not speak to men but to God chapter uh, acts chapter two when they were speaking in tongues they were declaring the wonders of god they were not evangelizing please understand this the evangelism came later by peter it did not happen through the tongues even though they understood what they were saying they were simply declaring the wonders of god much as you read in the book of psalms because why they were speaking to god they weren't speaking to men. Now, Paul, and I've heard so much confusion by some really godly men and learned in the scriptures, but it's clear here that tongues are man, excuse me, it, it is man speaking to God. Prophecy, however, is different. And it says here in verse four, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he, I'm sorry, verse three, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men, for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Obviously, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I would say in varying degrees. That's why you have to weigh it. But it is God showing me something and communicating through me to men. Okay? So a tongue is by the Spirit, me speaking to God. The interpretation then should reflect that. Okay? It should reflect that. But many times in churches you hear, thus saith the Lord, O my people. All right. If that happens at power line, I would be very gracious. I would walk up to the person and I would say, I'm sorry, but could you keep quiet for right now? Because you're about to give a prophecy and it might be very valid and helpful, but let's wait for the interpretation of this tongue, please. Okay? Because he's already telling me he has a word for the people and that's not what a tongue does. So if he's if he thinks he's giving an interpretation, or she thinks they're giving an interpretation, they would be mistaken. But they may be giving a prophecy. So let's just hold until we get the interpretation, okay? Um, <clears throat> and then it, he, to avoid any further confusion, he does say in verse twenty nine, two or three prophets should speak. And the others should weigh carefully. That is the word cre uh um that is the word for judge creesus, and we should weigh carefully what he says. So in other words, two or three should give a prophetic word, and then there should be a weighing of this. If some of it's not of the Lord, that needs to be pointed out. But weighing does not necessarily mean just, is, is, is this of God or not? But it is also, how then do we apply this? What does this mean for us? And you can actually see that if you do a word study of the word judge in the book of Corinthians, it's not just rendering a verdict, this is God or, or not, but it's also, how do you then live this? Okay, so I'm going to suggest to you that after two or three prophecies are given, then we need to weigh it so i you know i the lord actually within the last year has challenged me on this because sometimes there's a, a prophecy and then a scripture that's given and another prophecy and then another prophecy and and we get into and, and it starts going on and i've realized wow you know what scripture's clear here and if there's prophetic words that are given you know i, I don't mind stepping in and saying hey we need to weigh this now life group leaders let's weigh this um, and and speak to it. I want to conclude now with chapter 15. I realize that's not the last chapter, but we're not going to get into chapter 16, but there's there's something very interesting uh, here in chapter 15 with regard to um, the gospel. He says here, "Now, brothers, switching, to another question that they had now brothers i want to remind you of the gospel i preached to you which you received and on which and on which you have taken your stand verse two by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word i preached to you otherwise you have believed in vain what he gets into then is a creed We know this by the language that he uses in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Let's understand that the gospel Paul received was from Christ. Um, For what I received, I passed on to you. He uses the same language in chapter 11, where he says, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And the language that's used here, it, it seems to indicate a creed, not just simply something that he received directly from the Lord, but a creed that he has received. Um, what he quotes there in chapter 11 is actually uh, the, the red that you read is actually quoted from Luke. Remember Luke traveled with Paul, Paul um, quotes from Luke's gospel on occasion. Um, and so, Paul then is giving us a creed. Now, I want to. This creed probably was uh, put into form just only a few years after Christ was raised from the dead. And this is what it says: that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about here? According to the scriptures. I'm sorry. The law and the prophets, so the Old Testament. Now, it's possible that there was a gospel written before 55 AD. We don't know this for sure. It's possible. And consequently, he might be referring to that as scripture, but he is most definitely referring to the Old Testament. And it would seem more likely that he is not referencing anything that we would read in the New Testament, but more than likely just the Old Testament. Okay? And so when he is saying that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he is pointing to the Old Testament. Passages such as Isaiah 53, that he was wounded for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. For we all like sheep have gone astray, each one turning to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that this man of sorrows would be a sin offering for us. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 and such. So, It's and many other passages in the Scripture that talk about this sacrifice. But let's look at something more here. Very interesting. He says, according, uh, he says, verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Not just that he was raised, but that he was raised on the third day, according to the Old Testament. Here's my question: Where in the Old Testament? does it say that Jesus was raised on the third day or at least prophesied it or maybe even, hint, pictured it? Okay, Jonah, Jonah pictured it And that would not be real clear, but it is still a picture. And it is actually a picture that Jesus refers to, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. Three days and three nights, simply meaning three days, not three literal days and three literal nights. That is an idiom, an expression in the Aramaic that simply would mean a period of time touching on three days. Friday, part of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. OK, now, where else? Any idea? Isaiah 53 does talk about Jesus' resurrection, talks about the life that he would have and impart that to others, but doesn't really talk about a resurrection and certainly not on the third day. Here it talks about Psalm 16. And what about Psalm 16? <laughs> OK. All right. So he does talk about the resurrection, but he doesn't talk about the resurrection on the third day. Okay, And that's what I found so curious because Luke does this in Luke 24. Jesus rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And I just thought, well, wait a second. Jesus raised on the third day and I thought of Jonah, but I couldn't think of anything beyond that. Now follow me. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 15 and go to, of all places, of all places, Leviticus. That's right. Leviticus. I'm sorry. I've got to get my bearings here. Leviticus 19 Leviticus 19 verse 6 now I'm going to back up just a little bit give me a second here I'm a slow page turner there we go Leviticus 19 I'm actually going to start in verse 5 when you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord stop It doesn't say stop. I am stopping. These sacrifices are a shadow of things to come. The body is found in Christ, or NIV says the reality is found in Christ. So Christ is the body, and these sacrifices, festivals, the ceremonial law are shadows of Christ, but very important. The shadows were very important. So important that if you offered the fire on the altar wrongly, you know what happened to Aaron's first two sons. They were struck down dead. So preserving this shadow was very important. Okay. What is, as we talk about the fellowship offering, what fellowship in the New Testament might he be talking about? I think he's very specifically talking about our fellowship with God. What theological term do we use in the New Testament with regard to our fellowship with God, our newfound fellowship with God? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Okay. This is a reconciliation offering. I'm speaking New Testament terminology right now. Okay, okay. So he, this is a shadow of our reconciliation. Yes. Sorry, I was just going to say, in the NASB, it called it a peace offering. Okay. So then, could that also then be tied to Ephesians when Paul says that Jesus is our peace? Okay, and and again, uh, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That is peace with God. So yeah. It would, uh, but it is talking about our relationship with God. The term that's used in the New Testament is reconciliation. So this is the, in New Testament terminology, this is a reconciliation offering. Now follow this. Sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. Okay? All sacrifices had to be done very specifically because they are shadows that needed to picture the coming Christ very clearly. And God was really serious about this. Then it goes on to say it shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he is desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. This is a serious sacrifice, a very serious shadow. Let me now tell you this. Christ's death on the cross was our reconciliation sacrifice. It could remain in the grave, but something had to happen on the third day. And if something did not happen on the third day, we would not be able to continuously feast upon this sacrifice. And chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians says, come, let's attend the festival, this feast before the Lord. And it it is referencing this very reconciliation and fellowship that we have with God through Christ. Christ is the reconciliation sacrifice. Something had to happen to that sacrifice on the third day, people. How would a better picture of this continual feast of the reconciliation sacrifice that we have in the new covenant than for that sacrifice to have been raised from the dead. Now we can, because now it is life. I don't know, maybe in the old covenant he said after the third you know third day and on forget it, maybe because it would be contaminated, it would get spoiled, they could get you know uh, any kind of stomach viruses and such, maybe even die I don't know it doesn't tell us why you couldn't eat it on anymore, but now. We can feast from this sacrifice because that sacrifice has been raised from the dead. So this is a picture then of Christ's resurrection. It has to be because the reconciliation sacrifice could only be eaten for the first two days. Our sacrifice on the third day was raised to life again. How awesome is that? Okay. This Question. Yes, so it would be this feast that we have at the banqueting table of Christ that is part of our inheritance. And remember, in heaven, we will have that inheritance in full, and that's called the Supper of the Lamb. But now we still participate in that on a daily basis. So yes, um, and those who sacrifice at the altar... And, that, and by the way, just a little side note, that is in the present tense, so that gives us the indication that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But they sacrifice at the, at the altar, and they have no right to eat at our table because this is the table of the Lord. This is the reconciliation sacrifice. I'm sorry? So in essence, look, we eat the third day sacrifice. Yes. Because they were still under law and did not see It Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, Where's that from? 1 Corinthians? You said something, let, come let us eat. Chapter 5. With regard to getting rid of the old yeast um, and five. therefore disfellowshipping the brother, uh, you need to get rid of that sin in the church. He then uh, goes off into talking about this feast and getting rid of... Um, Sin in general. Um, And I'm going to conclude with this. He says in uh, chapter 15, verse 58, Therefore, my brothers stand firm. This is the same language he used in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why would he use this, therefore, this conclusion at the end of something that's based on a little bit of the cross in the beginning, but his focus really is the resurrection. Why would he conclude uh, a treatise on the gospel and defending it specifically the resurrection with this. And it is because of the resurrection that we will receive all of our rewards. Christ himself, we will see face to face how we lived this life will be brought to light. Then um, the fullness of Christ's glory will be manifested. His glory in us. Then as sons of God will be fully manifested and the, every tear wiped away, everything that we did in this life will then impact our forever. So your labor in the Lord, though you may see no fruit from it, remember Noah, how many did he win to the Lord? Maybe six at the most, unless the other people that he won to the Lord died before the flood only because there were only eight people on the ark. If he had won anyone else to repentance and to the Lord, they would have been there on the ark, but there wasn't. So at most, he won six to the Lord, and and yet it says he obeyed the commands of God. He walked with God, and because he walked with God, God said, you're the man. I've got a mission for you. Was a preacher of righteousness, so very little fruit as we would weigh fruit, And yet, when he is in heaven, I seriously doubt God would say, I'm sorry, you want only six to the Lord, you're only going to get a little bit here. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Because he obeyed God's commands. And he walked in that. And he walked with God in this amazing fellowship with the Father. And from that fellowship flowed his obedience to the Father. So, yes, He labored in the Lord and I am sure Noah will receive a tremendous inheritance regardless of the visible fruit. He obeyed God. So regardless of your visible fruit in your life, Do what the Lord leads you and tells you to do. Seek Him. Follow after Him. Regardless of the fruit that comes, regardless of whether you win one person or two people or thousands to Christ, obey Him. Speak the Word of God. Minister to the lost. Minister to the people in the church. Even if they don't respond. That was Jeremiah's ministry. No, so few responded. But He said, still speak the Word I put in your mouth. And Paul concludes this. Why, why should we not get discouraged? Why should we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord? Because one day. Because of the resurrection that he's been talking about one day. One day. And I keep your eyes on that one day. All right. I'm over my time here. I realize, so I'm going to wrap this up. First Corinthians, there is so much more that we could talk about, and I'm sure questions. Makilani, you have one, uh, but so many questions that we could talk about. We don't have time for. But this is going to be the nature of the books generally that we go through. Second Corinthians won't be an exception. Uh, several chapters there, so it's going to be tough to tackle everything. Read them therefore beforehand, please, please, please. Read them beforehand, let God minister to you so that when I speak and when I teach... This is just going to be some icing on the cake for us. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. You are so good. Thank you that one day when we are raised from the dead and this world is, present world is done away with the curses lifted, there is going to be a new heavens and new earth. We will enjoy you as one seen face to face, no longer in a mirror, but face to face, knowing as we are fully known that we will enjoy you forever. All of this junk of this world that the, the your creation groans under because it's under decay and curse will be lifted and we will enjoy you. Father, we look forward to that day and our labor is not in vain. So I ask you, Lord, would you encourage our hearts this evening that our hearts would be hearts that respond to your call, regardless of any fruit we might see. Just encourage us with this word, Lord. Encourage us that, Father, we would always give ourselves fully, fully to the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.